0: How do you respond, how does one respond, when they know that they are about to die? We talk of our life flashing before our eyes. I wonder if that has happened to you, when you were confronted with the prospect of imminent death. And I ask that because that has been in my mind this week, if you know that. A couple weeks ago, I went down to a a tour, a power plant in Colorado. I'm engaged in some litigation uh, surrounding that plant. And I learned this week, to my horror, that there was an accident at the coal pit. It was a coal-fired power plant. And I remember, as I toured this power plant, looking from a distance at this coal pit, you could not imagine the size of that coal pit. I mean, just a bulldozer's driving up the pit and looking like toy vehicles that size. And what had happened was that two of the subcontractors who were maintaining that coal pit, one in his 20s, one in his 30s, had apparently gotten out of their vehicle as they were assessing how that coal pit would be moved, one of the stacks, I guess, of it. And the coal pit collapsed on them. And they were buried 60 feet deep in an 80 foot coal collapse. 60 feet deep. And as I was texting my family about it, I just reflected, and they died. And I reflected and I said, I hope it was fast, because I cannot imagine the nightmare of being trapped 60 feet deep in coal. And I wonder, have you ever placed yourself in that position? What, how would I respond if I knew in that moment I am going to die? Well, we come to Mark chapter 4, and veteran fishermen on the Sea of Galilee came to a point where they knew they were going to die. They had been on the Sea of Galilee many times. I'm sure they had come through storms, but probably not one like this one. One in which their boat was filling up with water by a storm that had hit the lake. The waves were breaking over their boat, and these veteran sailors went to Jesus and said, Jesus, don't you care that we Perish. The idea is that we are going to die. We are dying. Don't you care? Now, in light of that, these weren't landlubbers, these were people who knew the sea. In light of that natural panic, what do we think when we hear Jesus' response to these men? Of course you know the story Jesus says peace be still and it immediately is calm we'll talk about that immediately it's calm and then he looks at them and he says this why are you so fearful how is it that ye have no faith how would you respond when you were about to die when you were sure that death was imminent, you say, Jesus, have a little bit of compassion on these guys. Jesus, their response was entirely natural in light of the storm that they were facing. Jesus cut them a break. But no. Jesus knows that they need to learn a lesson. Why are you so afraid? How is it that you have No faith. Wow. What is this passage telling us about how these disciples responded to a storm? What is it telling us about who Jesus is in a storm? And what is it telling us about how Jesus expects you and me to respond to the storms that we're facing today and tomorrow? And the next day, what kind of measuring stick does this storm show us about our own faith? The title of the message this morning, Jesus in the Storm. Jesus in the Storm. And may we gain a clear perspective this morning of who Jesus is in our own storms. Let's start first of all by talking about the storm rising. The storm rising. Rising. We'll look next at the storm rebuked and we'll close by looking at the storm revealing. What did it reveal about Jesus and then about his disciples? The storm rising. Now, we need to go for context to the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, we've talked about it already, is not actually a sea. It is a lake. It is a freshwater lake. It is about 13 miles long, and about seven or eight miles wide. It is in the northeastern part of Israel. It connects to the Jordan River that flows all the way down to the Dead Sea, along the eastern part of the land of Israel. And perhaps some of you have been to the Holy Land. You have seen the Sea of Galilee with your own eyes. The Sea of Galilee is the world's lowest freshwater lake. It is nearly 700 feet below sea level and it's in almost a bowl so if you can imagine it is an a sunken like a bowl like the bottom of a bowl and rimming the edge of the bowl are our hills mountains elevation and so what we are told is that these winds can come off these mountains off these hills and create significant turbulence on the lake. Ordinarily, the lake is fairly calm. It's not like Lake Superior or one of these great lakes that can whip up these just truly massive storms. But nonetheless, there is a record of significant storms arising on the sea. In fact, it's in our news. I read this as I was looking up a little bit about the Sea of Galilee. Just less than one month ago, on the weekend of May 14th and 15th, in that time frame, there was a massive storm on the Sea of Galilee. You could look it up and just Google it and you'll see all about it. The storm, um, uh, because of some atmospheric issues that were there in that area, there were winds of nearly 50 miles an hour that were uh, in the area and gusts of up to nearly 90 miles an hour gusts of up to nearly 90 miles an hour in this area. And this storm produced such large waves that it crashed on the promenade, on the boardwalk of the city of Tiberias, a very notable uh, uh, area, uh, city on the Sea of Galilee, a big tourist haven, and caused what they estimated to be up to $50 million in damage. $50 million in damage from these waves just smashing against the boardwalk. Some storms have been recorded. There was one in 1992 that is still referred to as one of the great storms on the Sea of Galilee. And there were waves that were reaching, that were over five feet tall and up to 10 feet, up to as high as 10 feet on this freshwater lake. So the idea of significant storms arising on the Sea of Galilee would not have been uncommon to these sailors. Well, how did this storm come about? Well, let's start, if you will, in verse 31, excuse me, in verse 35. It begins, and the same day when the even or the evening was come. So what's the same day? The same day as what? The same day we've been looking at where Jesus was teaching them from a boat in parables. So you can imagine Jesus getting up and presenting the words of the kingdom in parable form and going on a significant teaching of them. Now, he may have been teaching all day. It's very clear that later this evening, Jesus was exhausted How else can you sleep through a major storm on a boat that is about to capsize your boat? Jesus was exhausted, perhaps teaching all day. And notice then, when the evening was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. So they're likely on the northwestern side of the lake. Jesus is saying, Let's go over to the less inhabited eastern side. This may have been for a desire to have a rest, but also when we Come next week to Mark 5, we're going to see he had an appointment. He had an appointment with a demonic-infested, a demonic-plagued man. And Jesus undoubtedly was following his father's instructions. So Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, now notice this phrase, even as he was in the ship. That's an interesting detail, right? That's a good reporter's detail, even as he was. What is that saying? He didn't get out of the boat. He didn't go back to the house and freshen up. He didn't go get dinner at someone's house. He was in the boat, and he was teaching. And then they sent the multitude away because it was likely sundown or evening was coming, and the disciples got into the boat, and they took him just as he was, straight from teaching, and they went over because Jesus says, let's go to the other side. So that is the basic context. And you say, what kind of boat is this? Do you know that in the 1980s, they discovered a boat in the Sea of Galilee? You can actually see it. It's an archaeological find. And uh, uh, the the Sea of Galilee was apparently in a drought. The water had receded, and they saw evidence of a fishing boat. They, they, They dated it using radiological methods, and they found that it dated back right to around the first century. This was a boat that may very well have been in operation when Jesus was ministering on the Sea of Galilee. It was a very fascinating boat. It was 27 feet long. You can just get that picture, 27 feet long. It was about seven and a half feet wide. It was about a little over 4 feet deep. It was a fairly flat-bottomed boat, So likely, fishermen could go right up onto the shore, right? Because they'd want to take it right up onto the shore. So a fairly flat-bottomed boat. Now, does this have anything to do with the boat that Jesus was in? We have no idea. Other than that, this would have been not an uncommon boat. So if you think Jesus has 12 disciples and himself, the boat that they found would have fit about 15 people. And so it's not uncommon, it wouldn't be unlikely that Jesus would have been in a similar boat with his disciples. So just think of this kind of craft. And there arose, verse 37 says, a great storm of wind, a great storm, a mega storm, a huge squall. And the waves beat into the ship, over the side of the ship, so that it was now full. And Jesus, he was in the hinder part, in the back, in the stern of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Now there's described these these boats that would have had just a little cushion, maybe a leather kind of cushion, that the, the helmsman would have used at the back of the boat. Jesus may simply have been on that or on some kind of of just something softer that he would have laid down on, and he was sound asleep. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Don't you care that we are dying? Now pause there on the severity there. Again, as I said, these are fishermen. These are veteran seafarers. These are not people who are, it's their first time on a boat. They'd been around plenty of storms. They knew exactly what the Sea of Galilee was capable of. And they decided, we're going to die. We're going to die. That's a real significant storm, their boat filling up with water. So notice, first of all, the storm rising. But then notice, secondly, the storm rebuked. Now, what has happened here? Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind. Now, where is Jesus? He's sound asleep. Why is he sound asleep? Well, first, you would say because he's exhausted. I love the contrast that this story gives us of Jesus, someone who was fully man and who was fully God. He was fully man because he was bone tired. He could fall asleep and stay asleep even when he's facing five to ten foot waves that are breaking over the board and wind gusts that are causing the veteran seafarers' To panic. He was fully man, but he was fully God in that he got up and rebuked the wind and, and and said, Peace be still to the waves, and there was an immediate calm. By the way, where were these disciples? These disciples, how long do you think they tried to bail the water out of the boat before they came and woke up Jesus? Now think about this for a minute. These are veteran sailors. Who is Jesus? Was he a fisherman? He was a carpenter. He was a landlubber for all we know. Where did he grow up? In Capernaum on the sea? No. Nazareth. Where's that? Agricultural country. Farming country. How much humility do you think it took for these fishermen to wake up the carpenter from the farming community and say, Jesus, I mean, that would be like Ben and Scott Hatchett struggling to figure out something mechanical at church and finally giving up and saying, Peter, can you help us? Peter, we've reached our wit's end here and we need to go to you to see if you can fix it. Well, that wouldn't make any sense. But it finally got to the point where these guys came to the carpenter and said, hey, don't you care that we are perishing? Now, What does Jesus do? He gets up, he arises, and notice verse 39 he rebukes the wind, and he says, He speaks. Now, why did Jesus speak? I heard one pastor ask this wonderful question Why did Jesus speak? The wind can't hear, the waves can't hear. Who could hear? The disciples could hear. He spoke. Now, why is this relevant? Because some Bible verses may come to mind. Listen to what Scripture says about he, in Hebrews 1, that God has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus created the world. John 1 says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creating source of everything we see in the natural world. Hebrews 11.3 says through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the what? The word of God. God spoke And it was. The creative word of God, through the word who became flesh, Jesus spoke and it was done Colossians 1 says for by him by Jesus were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible it goes on to say all things were created by him and for him and he is before all things and by him all things consist literally hold together Our scientists have been able to understand the laws of nature by which our world holds together. And our Bible tells us that Jesus is the ultimate law of nature because only by him does this world hold together. He is at their root. He is their power of these laws of nature. And so It makes more sense perhaps then when we see the one who created all things by his word from the very beginning giving an authoritative command. He rebuked the wind. By the way, Jesus uses the exact same words in Mark chapter one, peace be still. He uses the exact same words when he rebukes a demon plagued man it has led some to conclude that Jesus was rebuking actually a satanic storm, a storm that Satan himself had whipped up in order to try to cut short the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And we can't be too dogmatic about that, but we see here Jesus rebuking the wind and saying to the sea, peace, be still. This word peace, it literally means hush silence, be quiet. Now, again, think of these gusts of wind, 50 to 80 mile an hour winds or more, five to 10 feet waves crashing over the boat. Jesus stands up and screams, yells into this abyss, quiet! And immediately, the wind stops. Now, it wouldn't have been all that strange for a wind or a storm to blow through and then leave a calm. You've seen it after a big storm in Minnesota. You walk out and the storm wa- walk, uh, 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 waves through and then you look around it's very peaceful. But the amazing thing about this is that the waves stopped immediately. Wind can die down quickly. Waves do not die down that quickly. Even after a storm, it takes a significant amount of time for the waves to just work their power and their restlessness out. Not here. They immediately stop. Friends, do you know the force of nature that Jesus controlled with a word in this miracle? I saw something remarkable on the coast of Scotland. A scientist a few years ago found that the, the, the power of these waves beating the shore had moved a 620-ton boulder. A boulder that weighed 620 tons. It had actually moved it. That is, um, I, I, I read, over 90, about 90 African elephants, the weight of that boulder. 90 African, large African elephants. The waves moved that boulder. Can you imagine the waves across, the power of those waves across that entire Sea of Galilee, and with one word, with one phrase, peace, be still, quiet. Everything becomes a glass sea. Is it any wonder that these disciples in verse 41 said, it says of them, they feared exceedingly, literally, they feared a great fear. They were utterly in awe. And they said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Wouldn't you have said the same thing? With a word, the forces of nature are governed and stilled and quieted completely. Wow. Friend, that's the Jesus who is at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding on your behalf. That is the Jesus who right now is alive as your savior and your king. That is the Jesus that right now is the one before whom you can bring all your burdens and cast them down and say, Jesus, I need your help today. With one word, he stills all the forces of nature, millions upon millions of gallons of water are controlled at his word. And all of the atmospheric forces giving rise to wind. The storm rising, the storm rebuked by the king, the son of God with all authority who created the world and who has entire power over it. And that's why third, we need to move to the storm revealing Because what I want to focus on as we close here is how Jesus responds to his disciples. They have awakened him. Jesus, don't you care that we're dying here in this storm? And notice he rebukes the wind, the wind ceases, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? You have no faith. Are we being, is Jesus being harsh with these men? Come on, Jesus, cut him a break. What's going on here? Notice, first of all, what Jesus is saying. This storm was a measuring stick. It was, if you'll pardon me, a faith o And Jesus saw that in this storm, their faith capability was under test, and they failed They failed. And Jesus says, how is it that you have no faith? Can we just pause there to say, friends, your true faith, your faith in a practical sense, is measured in storms, not in calm seas. It is one thing for us to be in very favorable conditions and circumstances in our life, and we're attending church each week, and we're fellowshipping with other Christians, and we say, Everything is going well. My faith is strong. No, that's not the faithometer. The faithometer is when the wind picks up, and the waves pick up, and your boat is taking on water, and you think, you're going to die. Oh, I don't mean just physically. I don't mean just physically. Death is a metaphor for all kinds of things in our life. The death of an opportunity. The death of a relationship. The death of our security in our bank account. The death of a vision or a dream that we've had. The death of something we've always wished for. And when that is threatened... What we prize as valuable, our lives, our opportunities, our circumstances, when they are threatened, that's our faithometer. That's the measuring stick of what we believe and ultimately who we believe. Peter himself was a great example of this. When Peter was in the upper room, he said to Jesus, I will never deny you. I don't care, I would go to the death with you when he was with Jesus privately in the upper room. And then what happens when Jesus is on trial just a few short hours later, and he's outside the high priest's home, and he realizes that if he identifies with Christ, he might go on trial. He might be arrested. His life might be in jeopardy. What happens in the storm? He says, I don't even know him. No. The test of our faith is not in the calm seas. It is in the storm he sees. And Jesus sees right here, this reveals, this storm reveals something about them. How is it that you have no faith? Why are you so fearful? Now, let's break that down. How could Jesus say that they had no faith? Because from a, from a certain perspective, they had a lot of faith they came to a carpenter in the middle of a storm and says, basically, you got to do something. Jesus, don't you care? You're sitting there sleeping. W- wasn't that faith? To come to him and say, you can fix this maybe? Now, what Jesus was looking for. And I think to understand why this revealed something about their lack of faith and their fear in the midst of this storm is to understand what faith is. Faith is made up of at least two things. Faith is made up of seeing, and it's made up of trusting. And they go hand in hand. Seeing and trusting. Why do I say that faith is seeing? Because remember Hebrews chapter 11 Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the, it substantiates. It makes real what we hope for. And it is the evidence. It is the proof of things not seen. So it is, faith is seeing things that are real that we can't see with our human eyes. Faith is substantiating, making real things that are otherwise invisible. That's why Hebrews 11 can say of Moses that he endured the wrath of the king as seeing him who is invisible. How could Moses endure the wrath of the king of Egypt? Because he saw someone who was invisible that other people didn't see. And because he could see him, he could be real to him by faith. Moses could endure. So faith is seeing and then it is trusting. And as I said, those two things go hand in hand. Think of a baby. A baby clings to its mother. And if you're a stranger, you come up to a baby and say, here, baby, come to me. Let me hold you. And what does the baby do? The baby looks at you, and it turns back to its mom and says, "Uh uh-uh. Why? Because the baby doesn't trust you. Why doesn't the baby trust you? Because the baby doesn't know you like it knows mom. It does not see you as a trustworthy person, and so therefore, it will not trust you. I look at a chair, and I decide, will I sit down on the chair and trust the chair? If it is a very old and rickety wood chair, and it looks entirely incapable of supporting me, and I have never sat on it before, I will say, I see that, and therefore, I don't trust that. Faith is seeing and it is trusting. Now where did the disciples fail? The disciples failed in what they saw. The simple point is this: Every time we are in a storm, or any time we are in any circumstance of life, there is a certain picture of God that we are painting we are painting and drawing out a picture of who God is and how he operates in our lives. The problem is, the problem of faith, is that so often it's the wrong picture. It's not a true picture. Do you know this is the way we deal in relationships so often? How many times have you rush to a conclusion about someone. You have painted a picture about someone that was completely false and then you realized it later and you said, oh, the picture I had of them in my mind was completely wrong. Someone responds harshly to you in a particular situation and your first reaction is anger and irritation and frustration. How dare they respond? I would never treat them like that. This person is a jerk. And then you realize what they were going through that day. And you realize the wound that they had in their life, the story that they had going on, and you said, oh, how could I have been so impatient with them, so rude to them? The picture that I had drawn of them was the wrong picture. Can I say husbands and wives just as a footnote? This is why so often our relationships can be challenging. Because we just paint the wrong pictures of each other. In his book, Love and Respect, Emerson Egerich just encourages us, something that's been so helpful to Tabitha and me, just to so often repeat, my spouse is a good-willed person. They mean well. They mean well. The picture I'm drawing of my husband or my wife can so often be the wrong picture. A good-willed person. Well, let's apply this to Jesus. What did they see about Jesus? Well, what question did they ask him? Master, don't you care that we're dying? Now, don't judge them too harshly. What would you and I have seen? We are desperately trying to save this boat. We are desperately trying to bail water out. And what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. Wouldn't you have said, Jesus, your sleep is evidence that you are not aware of what's going on right now. You are not aware of the circumstances and the danger that we're in. And your lack of awareness shows us that you do not care. Don't you care that we are dying? That's the picture of Jesus that they saw. And it was the wrong picture. Friend, what was the right picture of Jesus? Well, go back to the very beginning, verse 35. And the same day when the even was come, he said unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. Who was the one who got him in the boat in the first place? Who was the one who sent them on their journey to begin with? It was Jesus? In other words, the correct perspective was, Jesus was the one who sent us on this journey in the first place. He must have a purpose. The second thing that they didn't see about him was his authority. They didn't see that by a word, he had all power over this storm. They didn't see that as the son of God, the creator of all things, he was the one who was entirely in charge of everything that was happening. That's why at the end they say, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? They learned. That wasn't in their picture. And then, friends, why was he sleeping? Not because he didn't care about them, but because he simply wasn't concerned. He knew they weren't going to die. He had it under control. In fact, what faith probably would have looked like for them was not waking them up in the first place. If Jesus sent us on this journey and Jesus is sleeping on the boat completely unconcerned by what's happening, I guess we can trust him and we don't need to worry either. And You say, what kind of people could do that? The kind of people who see Jesus for who he actually is. Not the kind of false picture these disciples had painted of him. And friends, do you know the same thing is true in all of your storms in life, in all of your difficulties? How often do we ask Jesus in some or in substance, Jesus, don't you see what's happening in my life right now? Don't you see how hard life is for me right now? Don't you see how discouraged I am? Don't you see how much I'm facing death of something that I cherish? And then ultimately we end up asking Jesus, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you care by what I'm going through right now? And what is the problem? When we ask that question of Jesus, we have already painted the wrong picture of him. Does Jesus care about what you're going through right now, the storm you're in? Do you know how you know for sure that he did? Because he died for you. Because he gave what was most precious to himself, his life, for you. And if he has given his life for you, how could you accuse him of not caring about the things you're going through right now? If he was willing to give of his greatest treasure for you, how do you think he would not be able to care for what is treasure, what is a treasure, what is valuable to you that you think you're in risk of losing right now? How could you? What's the problem? Jesus looks and says at you and says, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith? You don't see me for who I really am. One who has all authority in the storms of your life. One who has a purpose, who brought you to this storm in the first place for a good purpose. Come on, let's get into this boat. Yes, we're going through a storm, but I'm here with you in the boat. And the one who cares so intensely about you and your well-being that he was willing to die on a cruel cross for you. When you embrace that Jesus, when you paint that picture of Jesus in the boat and hang it across all the storms of your life, friend, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be doubtful. We can see and we can trust That no boat that Jesus is in will go down. What ultimately did these disciples miss? They missed the fact that Jesus was never going down with that boat. And as long as they were in the boat with him, they weren't going down either. The story was not going to end for Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And it wasn't going to end for them. Let me close with just two encouragements this morning first of all my question for you is this is Jesus in your boat or perhaps more accurately are you in Jesus's boat I say to you friend if you are not in Jesus's boat you have no anchor you have no hope in the storms of life that you are facing today you have no hope you have nothing to rest on you have no trust to place in him you say how do I get into Jesus's boat the way that anyone does. They operate by faith. They come to him. They accept him as the king of the kingdom of God. They bow before him and accept him in faith. They place their trust in the person of Jesus Christ for their eternal salvation. Friend, have you entered Jesus' boat? Do you have faith in him? Have you placed that trust on him? But secondly, there's this, friend. What storm are you facing today? What fear is operating in your heart? What anxiety about the future are you dealing with right now? Recognize that it is a faith for you. It's a measuring stick. It's showing you where your faith is. And beware this morning, lest you're relying on a picture of Jesus that you've drawn That's not the Jesus that's in the Bible for us, that's drawn in God's word. Beware, lest you're operating faithlessly, fearfully today in your storm and not recognizing that the true picture of Jesus shows us that no boat with Jesus in it will ever sink. It will never because he ultimately is the one who brought us to the storm. He ultimately will bring us through the storm. And ultimately and finally, he is the one who cares deeply about us during the storm. Friends, when we are facing storms that are risking death of whatever it is in our life, may we realize, is Jesus in the boat? And who is the true Jesus on which we can depend? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning that your word is such a comfort we thank you for this story that we can relate to so much. These sailors who were certain of their death and it revealed their lack of faith, their fear revealed their lack of faith. And I pray, Father, for those of us here this morning who are going through a storm, the waves are beating on their boat, the wind is howling and they are scared. Oh, I pray, Father, would they see a true picture of who Jesus is, the King with all authority over the storm. I pray, Father, for that one this morning who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. They are not in Jesus' boat. They know it. I pray today would be the day that they humble themselves, that they repent and believe the King and be saved.